Well, good morning to you all. My name is Trevor, and I am the lead pastor here at Risen, and it is uh, wonderful to be with you in the heart of this Advent season. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you this morning to open up to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is where we will spend some of our time together this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are visiting for the first time. It's so glad that you're here. Uh, we have a gift for you before you leave this morning. We have a next step table that's right outside of the door. And so if you're new and you want to get more connected, learn more about the church, or just receive a gift that we have for you, please swing by that next step table before you leave. All right, um, we are in Advent, which is a season that means uh, coming, right? We're anticipating the coming of Christ. Historically, this season that you've heard of called Advent in the church has been about focusing on the second coming of Christ and his return. We spent time two weeks ago looking at a text that deals with that. And then, uh, and then last week, we, uh, uh, when Pastor Tim was here, he was speaking about John the Baptist and the anticipation or preparation for Christ's coming, which is something we can certainly think about in terms of someday in the future, but also our ability to think about Christmas morning. And if you weren't here last week, Tim talked about Christmas repentance. And I just thought it was a spectacular message where in which he specifically highlighted that doing religious things is not the same thing as, uh, as, as keeping with the fruit of repentance. And that, 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 that for many of us, it would not be difficult for us to do religious tasks to appear from the outside as though all is well with our souls. Meanwhile, we have not done the work day in and day out of just confessing and offering ourselves up before the Lord. And last week, Tim really uh, spent time with um, a text in, in Matthew chapter 3 that focused on John the Baptist. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, John the Baptist was uh, a sort of prophet-like figure. He wore very strange clothes, a camel hair outfit, a leather belt, and he went into the wilderness and he ate strange food. And prior to Christ being baptized, John the Baptist began to prepare for Christ as he proclaimed in the wilderness to people, repent and turn and God is coming, the kingdom is coming, get ready, get baptized. And John the Baptist is this prefigure, and, and you see him point again and again and again and again to Christ is coming, get ready, Christ is coming, get ready, get baptized, Christ is coming. And then John the Baptist, we didn't look at this last week, when he sees Christ on his way to be baptized, John the Baptist will look at Christ and he will declare of Jesus, he will say to Jesus, behold, he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. You can't find in the New Testament someone who's just more passionate about proclaiming Christ is coming, Jesus is coming, get ready for Jesus to come. And I set the stage there because this morning chapter 11, and we discover that same John the Baptist who had so much passion so much fire, struggling with doubt. Charles Taylor, who is a, uh, a great sort of contemporary philosopher, wrote a book called The Secular Age. 
And in the book, The Secular Age, he says, uh, he's describing the world we live in today. And he says, in a secular age, people of faith struggle with doubt. And people of doubt struggle with faith. And isn't that true of our world today? In Los Angeles, you are, there are so many options when we are looking for hope, right? Our na- some of our neighbors are agnostic. Some of our neighbors are atheists. Some of our neighbors are, believe in astrology. Some of them are Muslim. Some of them are Scientologists. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are, I mean, there's a, a, a plethora of options, And in the text we're looking at this morning, Jesus has been articulating who he is to the crowds. And so this morning we're going to read from John chapter 11, and I want you to see uh, John the Baptist as he experiences struggle with who Christ is. And so this is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had finished instructing instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This morning, I've got six points that I'm going to work through, and I'll give you an outline of what they look like now. They don't all rhyme or start with the same letter, so if you're taking notes, this could be confusing for you. Um, This morning, we're going to talk about John's doubt, and then we will talk about John's desire, then we will look at Jesus's compassion, Jesus's offensiveness, John's greatness, and Jesus's offer. If you're taking notes, I'll repeat those quickly again. John's doubt, John's desire, Jesus's compassion, Jesus's offensiveness, John's greatness, and Jesus's offer. We'll begin by talking about John's doubt. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it starts by saying, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, John was a wilderness proclaimer preparing the way for Jesus. 
John is dresses in strange clothes, eats a strange meal, but he is used to big crowds. He is used to proclaiming his message. He is used to the outside. He likes to go camping. He's that kind of guy. And we discover all of a sudden in Matthew chapter 11 that he is in the opposite scenario that he began when we read last week. He's not outside in the wilderness. He's inside in prison. He doesn't have a big audience. He's got only a few disciples he can communicate with. He's not in the world knowing what's happening. He has to be informed about what is going on. Once again, it was in John chapter 1 where John the Baptist proclaimed, after seeing Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. John the Baptist has so much confidence in Christ only to discover that here he's wrestling with doubt. He was there when the sky opened up and the Father's voice said of Jesus, this is my son in whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. John was there and yet now in prison, he is wrestling with whether or not Jesus is the one. He is doubting. People in Los Angeles ask that question all the time. Is Jesus the one? If you live in L.A., that's a very normal question for people to wrestle with. They hear about Jesus, and it's understandable that they're like, I'm not so sure that Jesus is the one. We encounter people all the time who think very differently. John's asking that question. Why? Because John is suffering. John is in prison. But what I want you to hear this morning and to see is that if John the Baptist can doubt, anybody can doubt. If John the Baptist can doubt, anybody can doubt. No one is safe from experiencing doubt. If John the Baptist can doubt, you can doubt too. And the place where we often experience doubt is in the midst of suffering, isn't it? It's when life is very difficult, when things aren't going our way. John the Baptist, the great wilderness preacher, is now in prison. And you understand why he's thinking this way. The Bible is filled with a lot of characters who wrestle with belief. Great characters like Job, like Jeremiah. You read the Psalms regularly, you'll discover psalmists declaring again and again, wrestling with whether or not God is as good as they struggle to believe God is. It's easy to trust Jesus when things are going very well, isn't it? But it's hard to trust Jesus when things are difficult. This Christmas season, every Christmas season, I am so keenly aware that we are singing songs of rejoicing and excitement, and we've got presents, and we've got family, and we've got feasting, and we're all gaining a few pounds, and it's wonderful. And at the same time, so many of us are lonely. We are experiencing struggle in our marriages, in our homes. Our families are falling apart. We've got depression that we're facing. Some of you have tough situations in your jobs. Some of you have children who've walked away from the faith. Some of you have marriages on the rock. Some of you this Christmas season got a health diagnosis that you did not want to come on this side of December 25th. And so if you're here this morning and you're facing challenges, and I know so many of you are, I understand that you might ask the question, Jesus, are you the one? Now, John has another reason to question. Jesus said that he came to set the captives free. It's one of great, Jesus' great claims. I have come to set the captives free. Well, where is John? He's in prison. 
He's not free. He is in captivity. And so you can imagine that John the Baptist is saying, God, I've seen what you've done for these others, but I want that for me. Why haven't you set me free? Didn't you say you came to set the captives free? Are you the one? John has doubt. And I want you to see, secondly, John's desire. In verse 3, it says, not just that John says, uh, not just that he's doubting, but it says, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John's desire, in the midst of his situation, he is looking for someone who will help. Someone who will make things right. Someone that he can hold on to. John says, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? I I believe that all of us in the midst of facing difficulty look for the one. I think that when we lay down at night, we are often wrestling with our problems and we are wondering, where will I find hope? Where will I find something to live for? Everyone, including John the Baptist, I think, is looking for a savior. Even in Los Angeles, which is such a cynical city, right? Some people are just like, no, there's no meaning. There's no purpose. And as I quoted Charles Taylor at the top, right, people of doubt struggle with faith. Even people who think that cynicism is the answer go to sleep at night, sometimes wrestling with why they can't be more consistently cynical. Why they, they bothers them. If only I could be more cynical. If only I could be, I think, if only I could be bah humbug. If I could just embody that, then maybe I would be set free from these false hopes in the world. My point is everybody is looking for a savior. Everyone in this room is looking for some hope, some meaning to live, something to get them out of the mess that we often face. And John the Baptist says, Jesus, are you the one or should I look for someone else? I don't think we get the option of not having a savior. I think we're all looking for someone. And I want you to see how Jesus responds to John's doubt. I want you to see how he responds to John's desire. Jesus responds in verse 4. Jesus answered these disciples who had been sent on behalf of John the Baptist in prison. Jesus answers the question, are you the one who's to come? Should we look for another? Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, go tell John, how dare you doubt me? How dare you question me? Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And I think that too often the church's response when people are struggling with doubt is to say, you just got to believe. How could you doubt? You just have to believe. If you're a good Christian, you're just going to believe. Jesus doesn't, doesn't, he's not harsh with John the Baptist. He doesn't say, how dare you doubt? And I just want to be very clear as a church in Los Angeles, wrestling in, in a world where people have all kinds of hope they're looking for and saviors they're looking to and avenues and paths. And we keep saying again and again, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. When someone enters into this church and someone says, I'm struggling with doubt, our attitude and our posture will not be, how dare you? As a church, our attitude and posture is going to be that of Christ. We're going to say, I understand why you are struggling. 
I, we get it. Jesus doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't critique John the Baptist. But he also doesn't, what does he not also do? He also doesn't say, John, um, you're right, I'm not the one. You're doubting? You just live into that, John. Go for it. Just keep doubting. That's the best way to move forward. Just, I doubt me too, right? He doesn't say that at all, right? Jesus takes a different posture. And I think that the posture that we also need to take is the same. Our church is not a church that says you can't have doubts. We understand that belief can be hard because if John the Baptist can doubt, any of us can doubt. But our goal as a church is to treat you like Jesus. When you say, I'm struggling with doubt, we're going to say, I totally understand why you're struggling with doubt. And we're also going to say, Jesus is still the one. He's still the one. And that's what Jesus says. He doesn't say, maybe I'm not the one. He doesn't affirm the doubt. He points to himself as the one. He says, go tell John. And then he summarizes the Old Testament. He summarizes all of the texts that are about what the Messiah is going to do as Jesus sees it. He, he quotes Isaiah 35. He quotes Isaiah 61. He says, go tell John the blind see. Go tell, tell, tell him that the lame walk that the lepers are healed, that the deaf are hearing, that the dead are being raised, that the poor are receiving good news. Jesus says, I am doing what the scriptures teach I am to do. I am the one. Jesus is the one that you are looking for. He just is. I get that you struggle. I struggle. We all struggle, especially today. But Jesus is the one we are looking for. And then Jesus says this, after giving this summary of all the things that he has been doing, Jesus says this thing. This is my fourth point, Jesus' offensiveness. Look what he says in verse 6. After he lays this out to John, he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed are you when you don't take offense at me. Jesus sees that he is offensive. Please don't, don't miss this. Jesus is offensive. It's amazing how many people in our world make Jesus unoffensive. When I was a kid, we would go to this uh, Mexican restaurant and they would have this guy come around and he was a terrible balloon animal artist. And, and he'd come to our table, and my parents, I don't know, to entertain us, I guess, would give him, like, $2, and he would take a long balloon, and then he would, like, twist it into a shape, and he'd be like, here, it's a monkey. And you received, I received it, and be like, oh, yeah. It doesn't look like a monkey, but you're telling me it is, right? Like, he would do this, and I think that we treat Jesus like a balloon animal sometimes. We twist him into all kinds of shapes, and we're like, ah, here he is. And you're like, but that's not really who he is. We make Jesus so inoffensive today. Jesus, see, I just, you got to see this. Jesus sees that he's offensive. He says, blessed are those who do not take offense at me. People say, oh, Jesus, oh, he's just the guy who, he just gives good advice. Man, Jesus is a great moral teacher. One of the greatest moral teachers of all time. Sure, he's a, he's a great moral teacher, but, but Jesus said that he has come to judge the world, to separate the wheat from the chaff. He, he is the dividing line. Jesus said, obeying me is how you love me. 
Jesus says every sin we commit is against him. Jesus says every single loyalty that you have in your life should look like hatred compared to him. That's offensive. You got to hate your mother. You want to love your mother? You got to hate your mother. You want to love your father? You got to hate your father. You gotta, your, your devotion to me, Jesus says, has to be so great that, when, that it looks like hatred in comparison. One point, Jesus is asked, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven times? Jesus says, try 500. I got to forgive my enemy 500 times? Yeah. Again and again and again and again and again. And when people meet Jesus in the Bible, do you notice this? Very few people are kind of hanging around Jesus accepting his moral teachings. In the New Testament, people are either running to Jesus or running from him. Not just because of what he says about himself, but what it means about us. Jesus is proclaiming, I have come because you need a savior. My name is Jesus. My parents named me that. Why? Because I have come to save my people from their sins. You need to be rescued. You need to be saved. That's not me. That's Jesus. But the only way that he can save you is by you giving yourself over to him. Jesus says to you this morning, you can't run your own life. Jesus says to you this morning, you cannot save yourself. Jesus says, that is why I have come. Do you understand why people try to keep from being offended by Jesus? Because they don't really want to confront what he says about himself. And you can't do that. Jesus understands that we are likely to be offended by him. And it's almost like for John the Baptist... Jesus says, my being the one does not mean you're going to get out of prison. Now, this is hard because people must have been wondering, hey, hold on a second. If Jesus is who he says he is and John the Baptist is who he says he is, then why is John the Baptist still in prison? Because we like to think if I'm experiencing suffering, it's because I did something wrong. Right? How many of us do that, right? When we're experiencing difficulty, our immediate is, oh, God must be punishing me. That's the way we conceive of God. I do good things, I get good rewards, I do bad things, and I get punishment. But that is not the way Jesus sees the world at all. Jesus is completely against that idea. Jesus says every good thing we do is like a filthy rag. Jesus says that when he comes to us, we are like sheep who have all gone astray. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Jesus comes to us and says every single one of us needs to be saved and can only be saved by him. And so the question, is Jesus in opposition to John? Well, Jesus answers that very clearly. In verses 7 through 11, you get to John's greatness, where Jesus says, did you go out to see a second guesser? Did you go out to see a soft, comfortable guy? No, if you wanted to see someone wearing soft, nice, clean, comfortable, don't get me dirty kind of clothes, you'd find them in royal palaces. But that's not what you went out to go see. Did you go out to see a guy who jumps on the bandwagon? No, you did not. That is not who John is. Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, you did. And you saw more than a prophet. 
You saw the one who Isaiah spoke about. You saw the greatest man who has ever lived. And the greatest man who ever lived will end up dying in a prison, being beheaded. And it's not because of his unfaithfulness. And it's not because of his sin. Salvation is not do good, get good. See, John must be thinking, well, why, what's wrong? What's wrong? What have I done wrong? I'm in prison. So clearly if I'm in prison, it means I've done something wrong. And we sometimes think that. We try, to, we try to have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, thinking that will save us. Earlier this week, I found myself standing in front of a judge. I was in Compton, California at the courthouse, where I was there to make right on a ticket that there was no other way I could make right apart from standing before a judge. And when I was sitting in the courtroom, I was not the first person called. The first man who was called, I'm going to call him Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson is called forward by the judge. Mr. Johnson stands before the judge. And the judge said to Mr. Johnson, Mr. Johnson, you were driving a car and you had no insurance. How do you plea? And he said, not guilty, Your Honor. And the judge said, okay, Mr. Johnson, I just want to be very clear to you, with you that saying not guilty means that you are requesting a trial at a later date. Is that what you're requesting? And he said, no, Your Honor, I want to settle this right now. And the judge said, okay, how do you plea? And he said, not guilty, Your Honor. And the judge, the judge looked at him puzzling, like with a, and, the, and, the, and Mr. Johnson said, here's the deal. I have insurance. I got insurance. I have proof of insurance right now. And the judge said, when you were driving, did you have insurance? No, Your Honor. How would you like to plea? Guilty, Your Honor. And the judge explained to him, I get it. Like, we can figure this all out. But you having insurance now, you doing the right thing now, doesn't make up for the fact that you did the wrong thing, and there's consequences for that. When it was my turn, I went up. Mr. DeBenning, how do you plead? Guilty, Your Honor. I am guilty as charged. And I, everything worked out all is, but it's, it is. If you have not stood in front of a judge and said that you're guilty, it's a, it can be a jarring experience no matter what it is that you're doing. What I was struck by was this, this man who went before me, he just, he wanted to convince the judge that he shouldn't be guilty because he's done the right thing now. But that's not how judges work. And that's not how God works. So we don't stand before God and say, I know that I did all of these selfish, self-centered, wicked things. I know that I caused great damage to God, to, to your people, to myself, to my family, to my neighbors, to creation. I know that I've done that, but I've been doing a good thing now, so I'm innocent. No. God says we are guilty, and because we are guilty, it comes with the consequences of death and separation from God. And Jesus 
shows up and says, yes, you are guilty, but in the midst of your guilty, I will pay the punishment. I will pay the fine so that you will be totally forgiven so that what was once considered scarlet is now white as snow. Your slate is completely wiped clean. You are restored back into right relationship with God. You are saved, rescued, forgiven, and given the promise of eternal life today and forever. Amen? If John the Baptist is in prison, and he is in prison, and he is suffering, Christ doesn't offer him a kind of, a kind of getting out of prison is the key to all your answers. Christ instead wants John the Baptist to know that he is the very peace of God in the midst of the suffering. If you are struggling and suffering, I want you to know, and I, I, I compassion, I, I can't even begin to say that I understand all of what you all are going through, but here I do understand. I don't, no matter what you're going through, Christ can be your peace in the midst of your storm. And that is why he has come. He offers hope in the midst of despair. If John can doubt, anybody can doubt. We all need a savior. Jesus is that savior. And then I want you to see how Jesus ends this thing that he says to John. He, he says in verse 11 that no one is greater than John the Baptist. And then I want you to hear this. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, Jesus says, John the Baptist belonged to the old order. John the Baptist, he was the one proclaiming what was going to happen, what was going to, that I was going to come. And John is the greatest. But John's greatness is surpassed by the least of those who are actually in the kingdom by Christ through faith. If you, if you receive Christ as your Savior and become, uh, 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 if you enter into the kingdom of God through Christ, the privileges that you experience are greater than anything that John the Baptist would experience. Jesus says, John the Baptist, that was great, but that's nothing compared to being in the kingdom. So the king of the whole world is born among us this Christmas season to offer us citizenship into his kingdom. And the privilege of being in that kingdom is greater than anything that John the Baptist ever had. But the only way to enter into that kingdom is repenting of your selfish ways, confessing and trusting Jesus. John asked, Jesus, are you the one? And we ask, Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And the question we face this morning is in our struggles and doubts, in our suffering and difficulty, in our desperate need for a savior, is Jesus the one? Will we receive him as the one? Will we be transformed by him as the one? And will we experience the peace of God in the midst of our struggles? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have not left us alone, but, we, but you sent your son to us. We thank you that he is the one we are looking for. He is the one we need. He is the one that offers us peace in the midst of our storm. He is the one that offers us forgiveness of our sins. He is the one that washes us and makes us new. He is the one that grants us life eternal, both now and forevermore. He is the one we're looking for. Lord, I want to pray for those who are here this morning who are struggling with doubt. I pray that they would know they are welcome here. And I pray that we would be a church that would say to them, we understand why you doubt. We want to show you that Jesus is the one. Lord, I pray for those who are in the midst of suffering and be it health issues, marriage issues, family issues, job issues, or a bunch of issues, Lord, that I don't have the ability to see or know, but you know. Lord, I do pray that they would, they would look in the midst of their chaos and find that you are with them in it, that you have not abandoned them. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You didn't come to us to stay at a distance and just ask us to reach up to you. You came to be born among us so that you would meet us in the midst of our struggle. I pray specifically this morning for those who are struggling, those whose marriages are on the rocks, those who have broken relationship with their children or their parents, those who are living a double life, that they would find you standing in the midst of their storm and their chaos, inviting you, inviting them to trust you more. Lord, I do pray that you would help us all to see our sin clearly, to see that we are all guilty. We have not loved you. We have not loved our neighbors as we should, and we can't do a bunch of good things to make it all right. But you have done something to make it all right. You sent Jesus to die on the cross so that he would die the death that we deserved. He rose again on the third day so that all who put their faith and trust in him would experience new life and the privileges of being a member of the kingdom, the privileges of being an adopted son or daughter of the king. Do not let us leave this morning without knowing that if we are in you, we are your children. And all the benefits given to Christ are passed on to us as your children. So help us to trust you. Help us to listen to you. Help us to be merciful to those who doubt. And help us when we are finding ourselves asking the question, are you the one? To hear you respond again and again, I am. I am. I am.